Well, let's turn back to Revelation chapter 2. As we look at the letter that Christ had dictated to the church in Ephesus. As I have thought and prayed about how I would serve you, brethren, and the Lord, while Pastor Tate is in Zimbabwe, you now know that I'm going to be taking you through a study of the covenants in the first hour. We're going to be going back to 1 Corinthians in the morning worship and in the evening church worship services. I have decided to to preach through the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. We have eight weeks. Next week, I will not be here, but the following eight weeks, from the end of the month until the middle of September, uh, we have eight weeks. So, Lord willing, I aim to preach uh, one sermon on each of these seven letters. As I thought about this just a little while ago, I said to myself, well, the the brethren might get a little worried and might wonder, well, well, why is Brother Frank decided to preach? These are, these are, some of these letters are, are quite uh, pungent, quite convicting. And it's not that I have seen any particular thing in these letters, which need to be addressed to this congregation. Uh, If God gives me opportunity, I will also preach these sermons to the brethren at Trinity Baptist Church, my own, my own, uh, my own home church. Um, But it is the conviction that these letters are relevant to every church of Jesus Christ. You have at the end of each letter. A statement of the Lord Jesus he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says not just to one church but to the churches and so these seven letters have relevance to all the churches of Christ in all of the ages and therefore they are relevant to us we have lessons to learn from the letters Christ dictated to John and through John to these churches. Well, I basically have two points this evening, not the typical Reformed Baptist three points. I have only two points this evening. And the first point is the right framework, the right framework for understanding uh, the seven letters and the first letter to the church at Ephesus in particular And then we're going to have the exposition in which I'll go through uh, all of the statements of the uh, letter to the church at Ephesus. So the the uh, the right framework. There are three elements to the to the right framework for understanding these letters and the letter to Ephesus in particular. The first thing to say about the right framework is that we must understand the universal relevance of the letters, the universal relevance of the letters. How we understand these seven letters and the seven churches is vital to how we apply the messages to ourselves. If you don't see the letters the way they were intended, you will most likely miss the way it is applied to us. Now, some have taken the idea about these seven letters that the seven letters represent seven different periods in the development of the church. Supposedly, uh, each letter has a particular time period to which it applies. This, I just have to say, straightforward, it is incorrect. The seven letters are not seven history periods of churches. William Hendrickson, a very astute Bible scholar, responded to this idea in his book, More Than Conquerors, and I'm going to quote it to you. 
what Mr. Hendrickson says. I think it's very sound. He says this, the notion that these seven churches describe seven successive periods of church history hardly needs refutation. Now, I have to say, Mr. Hendrickson is, uh, I, I, I don't think he's entirely accurate. It needs refutation. It needs to be stated up front because there are people, Bible scholars, Bible students who have held this position. He says, to, to say nothing about the almost humorous, if it were not deplorable, exegesis, which, for example, makes the church at Sardis, which was dead, refer to the glorious age of the Reformation, the age of Luther and Calvin, the age which brought the churches out of the oppression of Roman Catholicism to a very vivid expressions of spiritual life. And if you follow this idea that each church in Revelation 2 and 3 refers to a period of history, you end up saying that the Reformation, and the Reformation, the church was dead, which is the very opposite of what we say about that period. So this is what he says. He says it, was, it would almost be humorous if it were not so terrible that this is the application which is made from this view of the significance of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. It should be clear, he goes on to say, it should be clear to every student of the Bible that there is not one atom of evidence in all the sacred writings which in any way corroborates this thoroughly arbitrary method of cutting up the history of the church and assigning the results to pieces of respective epistles of Revelation 2 and 3. So you won't find justification for this idea of succeeding generations of churches or periods of churches in the Bible or in Revelation 2 and 3. The epistles, the seven letters, describe conditions which occur not in one particular age of church history, but again and again. So, to put it in different terms, these seven letters were written to existing churches which John the Apostle knew personally. He knew them. He knew what was going on in them, partly by experience. John uh, was in Ephesus just before he went to Patmos, and he was familiar with those churches personally. So... Um, each of these letters is relevant to all churches and we need to prayerfully ask, Lord, what do you have to say to us? We, we should not expect to find that everything said about those churches is true of us. That's not how we apply them. But we do examine them and say, okay, Lord, this is what happened in this church while John was in Patmos imprisoned for the gospel. What do we learn? You say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, I have two ears and I have one soul. What do you say to me? That's how we, uh, that's how we approach the letter. We hear, and by God's grace, we intend to obey. We, we hear and pray that our love for our Lord Jesus Christ will be sincere and vibrant. So that's the first thing. We need to have the right relevance. We need to understand how this applies. Secondly, uh, I want to say a word about the word angels, because in each one of the letters, Christ speaks. He says to the angel of the church, which is in. He addresses the angels and he tells John, you're writing John to angels. Now, right away, that ought to raise questions in our minds. People don't generally write to angels, just like people don't write, well, I won't say that because that might give the wrong impression. People don't write to angels. And this would be a unique command in all of sacred scripture. I don't know of a single place in the Bible where a believer or a prophet or a pastor is directed to write to an angel. So what are we to make? of this way that the Lord Jesus Christ dictates to the Apostle John there in, F, in uh, on Patmos Island, John write to the angel. 
Well, the word angel most often refers to those spiritual beings that inhabit heaven and do God's work, God's bidding. You have, uh, you have the angels that uh, surround the throne and cry out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They are the spiritual beings that worship God. They are the spiritual beings that God sends on his missions. He sends them for particular purposes. Well, this word, angel, is used to designate messengers sent to deliver messages. And you remember that in the Bible, very often, angels are sent as messengers of God to deliver messages. I'll just suggest a couple. You, you probably have, will think of these yourself, but you have an angel sent to uh, the Zacharias the priest to tell him that his wife was going to bear his son, whose name was to be John. An angel was sent to deliver a message to Zacharias. And then you have Mary, the mother of our Lord. An angel was sent to her, came in and announced to her that she was to be the mother of Messiah. And at the same, almost the same period in time, an angel is sent to uh, Joseph, the betrothed of Mary, to tell him it's okay for him to marry Mary. So this is what angels sometimes do. They deliver messages from God to ordinary people under God's direction. Angels do this. But uh, human messengers are also sent to deliver messages. Human people, human servants, are also used to deliver messages. And when they perform this function, they are sometimes called angels. Because the, the word for angel is also translatable as messenger. Let me give you a couple of examples so that you know, I, I want your conscience not just to say, well, Brother Frank said this. No, let's say, let's see where the Bible says this. Please look over for a moment at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I think you'll find these passages very clear that we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 11. There is uh, this interaction between John the Baptist, who's in prison, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ministering. So, you remember that John the Baptist had questions about Jesus. He's in prison. He's wondering, why in the world am I in prison if Jesus is the Messiah? And he sends people, his own disciples, um, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to ask a question. Notice 11.1. 1. When Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Who's going to Jesus? Sent from John the Baptist? John's disciples. People. Ordinary people. And say to him, and said to him, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So John sends a question. Jesus sends back an answer through disciples of John, mere mortals. And notice the next words. As these men were going away, Jesus began to, uh, to, I'm sorry, I'm losing my place, began, what did, what about John, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothings are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, I tell you. Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. And here it is. Behold, I send my messenger. 
The word there is angel. Speaking of John the Baptist, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. So here Jesus refers to John the Baptist as a messenger. The word is angel. And I had in my mind the second passage, which is in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 24. Here we have the messengers of John. The same, same event is happening here in Luke chapter 7, where John sends his disciples and they come to Jesus and they ask a question. Jesus responds, then verse 24, when the messengers of John had left, same people, the messengers, the word is plural of the word angels. Of course, they were not angelic beings who never die, who never recreate. These are John's disciples. But since they bear messages from Jesus back to John, they're called messengers, angels. One more, one more text. Um, uh, James 2.25. I won't read it for time's sake, but let me summarize for you. Remember this, that uh, Joshua sent spies into Jericho and Rahab received the messengers, the angels. That's the word in James 2.25. So the word angel may simply refer not to an angelic heavenly being, but to a messenger, one who receives a message, passes on a message. So this is the way I understand the angels of Revelation 2 and 3. They were messengers that had been sent, one from each church, to visit the Apostle John in prison on Patmos, and John is given the specific task to write to the messengers, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. So the angels in Revelation 2 and 3 are not angelic beings, but they are messengers, which is perfectly consistent with the use of the word in the New Testament. So there you have it. That won't enter an awful lot into our interpretation, but... It helps us in the proper understanding of the word angel there in Revelation 2 and 3. So, we have the right relevance. These letters are relevant to all churches in all time until Christ comes. And it's addressed to angels, which are messengers sent from the church, returning to the church with the letters that John wrote. Then we want to look at the structure, the structure uh, the structure of these letters. And I'm going to basically walk you through the structure of the first letter. All of the letters don't have the same structure. Some of them have cert certain elements that others don't have. Um, but the structure is similar. The Lord addresses each church with several things. First of all, there is the command to write to the specific church. And in verse 1, we have it. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus write. So there's the command to write to the church. Each one of the seven letters is named and a letter is dictated to them. So there's the command to write. The second part of the letter is that Christ presents himself. He, he, he writes concerning himself. And you notice that in the, the uh, in uh, verse 1b, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, I hold up my right hand here, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this in your, new, in your King James, it's this is what says, these things says the one, etc. puts it at the beginning there. So Christ presents himself. He has the letter addressed to a specific church. It's written. He presents himself. The third thing he does is he commends his church. 
And you see that in verses 2 and 3. He commends his church. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Quite a list of commendations for the church in Ephesus. Christ commends his church. The fourth thing in the letter is Christ reproves his church in verse 4. But I have this against you, the King James, somewhat against you. It's fine. I have this against you that you have left your first love. That's Jesus' reproof of his church. The fifth thing he does is Christ corrects his church. He not only tells the church what's wrong, but he tells the church how to correct itself. He corrects the church. Verse 5, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So the Lord reproves his church. He corrects his church in verse 5. And then he does, uh, I, I say, an interesting thing. And you, you think about this for a moment. He gives an additional commendation. Isn't it an odd thing? That Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. But I want to say something else good about you. Verse 6, right? Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Why would you give that kind of a commendation when you're saying, look, you, you need to pay attention to your love, or else I'm removing your, your lampstand. So this is a, a very interesting way, and it's a very significant way of Jesus dealing with his church. He has an additional commendation in verse 6. And then there's a call to universal attention. A call to universal attention. And this is what warrants us as looking at these letters and the way that we're looking at that initial, that uh, call to universal attention. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're not just reading someone else's mail. We're not just eavesdropping on someone's conversation. We have a warrant to examine this letter and to turn its light upon ourselves. And the last thing in the letter is a great promise. A great promise. And this is true of all seven letters. Of course, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there you have, there you have the structure of the letters. It's similar, as I say, some as we go through those seven letters, we'll find some of these elements are not existing in other churches and the letters to the other churches. So we have looked at the right framework for our understanding. How are we going to understand and apply the letters to the seven churches? We've looked at the relevance. It's relevant to all the churches in all time. To the angels who are addressed, basically messengers. If you differ with that, it's not a big problem. I don't expect everyone to agree with me, but it doesn't affect how we apply it. Third thing is the structure. We've seen the structure of the letter, the orderly structure of our Lord in writing to the church. So now in the second place, my second point this evening is the exposition. So what, what, how do we understand these eight statements made by Jesus Christ to the Apostle John with a message for the church in Ephesus. We'll step through each of the elements in order. Some will be very brief. So first of all, we have the command to write to the specific church. The command to write to the specific church, to the messenger or the angel, if you like, to the specific church. We are being reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ is dictating this message to the church in Ephesus through the Apostle John to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Ephesus write is the command to write and it's coming 
to John the Apostle, an apostolic leader, one of the original 12 men. John was quite aged at this point. He had been in Ephesus. He had been arrested by the Roman uh, authorities and thrown on a penal colony in the little rocky island of Patmos. So Jesus addresses his churches and he has a procedure. He has a procedure. I put it that way. What do I mean? The Lord Jesus does not merely leave an impression on the minds of his people individually. He doesn't come in the night to each individual believer who's a member of the church at Ephesus and say to that person, you know there's a problem in Ephesus and you or some of you have left your first love. He doesn't do that. He writes to one whom they may rightly regard as a representative of Jesus Christ. That's who the Apostle John was. The Lord Jesus appeared to John, not to all the members, to John. And he has the authority as an Apostle of Jesus Christ to speak to those churches or to write to those churches about the defects and the blessings of their church life. When he, addressed, when he directs his whole church, he does so, generally speaking, through, through leaders whom he has appointed. And that's the case here. It is the case in John. All the books of the Bible were given in this manner, with the recipients identified. So we have in the first verse here of this letter, a command to an apostle to the church to write. Sometimes people get upset with the limited influence that they have in their church. You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a right thing. If everybody was directly addressed by God, and God does, a, a, does directly address us in his holy word, chaos would ensue. But God generally sends his important messages to his church through leaders whom he has appointed, in this case, through the Apostle John. I was listening to somebody recently, I'm, I'm, I'm not remembering exactly who it was, um, who was, uh, who was, who was uh, making this, this point, that we don't have apostles anymore. That's, again, one of the next things we're coming up into here. Uh, but we do have the words of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, and that's what we must pay attention to. So here's the command to write, and it's given particularly by John the Apostle, that it comes with authority to the church. Secondly, we have in our text that Christ presents himself again in verse 1. He identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Oh, that's my left hand, sorry. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Where we have the valuable, a valuable truth about the Lord who addresses this church it is the truth which was first stated in chapter 1. In chapter 1, you have the vision of Christ the sudden vision of Christ to the Apostle John. John hears a voice, very uh, abrupt, right in a book, what you see. And John turns, he hears the voice, a loud voice, and he turns, and he says, I saw, what, seven golden lamps. And Jesus thought he'd said, I saw there is in Christ. I saw, well, he does say that. But first he says, I saw the seven golden lampstands, and then he describes the Lord Jesus. When I turned, verse 12 of chapter 1, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head in his hair were white like white wool like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire 
His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So what happens here? In Revelation 2.1, some of those elements of the initial vision are now presented to the particular church. And Christ is, as it were, saying, look, I told you in chapter 1 what the vision looked like, and now I'm taking some elements of this and saying, look, this in particular is valuable to all the churches, but especially valuable to you at Ephesus. You need to know this about me. It's strategic for Ephesus. And the important truth that is presented to Ephesus is that Jesus is present with his church. That's true for all the churches. But that's what he's saying. He's the one who walks among the golden lampstands. He's the owner of his church. He's the overseer of that church. He's looking out over his church. And he is the minister of his church, of this church, the church in Ephesus. And of course, of all the churches. And as we go through the rest of the statements, we're going to see these are very relevant to the churches to whom John writes at the dictation of Jesus. So Jesus Christ presents himself. And then in, verse, in verses 2 and 3, we have the third element of this letter, that Christ commends his church. He commends his church. As I pointed out before, that in my New American Standard, the phrase says this comes at the end of the, this section, but uh, at the end of verse 1, but says this is actually the beginning in the Greek. So your King James Bible, if you have that version, is correct. He, he says these things. Uh, it's like the, we have in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. That's how the section begins in commending the church. Thus says the Lord. Thus says him who holds the seven stars, etc. What the Lord says to his church in commendation is generally this. I know all about you. I know all about you. I'm walking around your candlestick. I'm observing your life. I'm not inattentive. Sometimes people will think about God this way. And God is basically inattentive. God has a lot of things to do. He's got, uh, he's got all these stars. He's got all these galaxies. He has life all over the earth. Who am I and what am I that God should pay attention to me? Well, God makes it very plain. Jesus Christ makes it very plain. I know all about you. I know you. I know what you do. I know how you live. And it's actually uh, a blessing because he says of them that there are some very good things about them. Jesus is saying, I'm not ignoring you. I know all your life. And here we should note one of the things that Jesus recognizes about the church at Ephesus is its tremendous unity. Now, you don't, it's not that easy to see. Actually, if you have your King James Bible, it's a lot easier to see than in my New American Standard, because in, in modern English, the word you doesn't really have number. I could say you, and you don't know if I'm talking to one person or several people, but in your King James Version, it says the. It has that uh, second person singular pronoun. And all throughout the letter to the to this this church in Ephesus, it's singular, you singular, as if the church were just one person. But the point is that what's true about the church is true about all of them. They have the kind of unity, if I can put it this way, that many churches would die to have. They are thoroughly united. What's true of one member is true of all the members. And that is a two-edged sword, if I may say so without meaning to pun at all. It's a two-edged sword because the, the strengths of the church is true of them all. And the weakness of the church 
is true of them all. Jesus refers to a unity which does not mark all of the churches. As you read through the, I'm sure you've read through the letters to the seven churches, and you notice that some of the churches are divided. There are some people who are in very good shape, some people who are in very bad shape. And so this is a mark of the church at Ephesus in particular. And uh, it's heightened in the case of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus then is marked by a pervasive unity. And this is what Jesus says about them. Now these Christians were marked by three wonderful features. The Lord Jesus Christ commends them. He doesn't emphasize their unity, but it's there in the text, in the second person singular. But they have three wonderful features, and again, it's true of them all. First of all, the members of the church were working hard with perseverance. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ says about them. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. He says you're working hard and you're working with perseverance. Now, working hard, you... I'm sorry to say it this way. You know, I'm going to separate the young people and the older people for a moment, for a purpose. You know, the older people know what it means to work hard and to keep on working. When you're young, that's not something that you are automatically familiar with. Something you need to develop. It's discipline. It's the discipline of sticking to a job until it's done. And that doesn't mean that all older people have worked until they're finished. But it is a feature more common to older saints than to younger saints. And this is what Jesus says. You've worked hard and you haven't stopped. You've gotten your job done. Working hard for a while is good, but keeping a good pace in labor is better. So what Jesus likes about the church in Ephesus is that these people are not quitters. These brethren are not quitters. They keep at it so their work is done. That's a commendation from Jesus Christ to his church in Ephesus. Second wonderful feature of the church is that they were morally principled, discerning, and discriminating. They were morally principled. They didn't just... Take everyone, we're all equals and we're all nice, so we're all nice people. The Lord Jesus Christ says, you people, you have a discriminating eye. It's a commendation from Jesus. They're not going to allow sin to fester in their members. They're going to address sin. They're going to call people out for their sins. He says, you people do not endure evil men. Somebody comes in and things are not right. Their life is not lining up with the word of God. They're going to hear about it. And that Jesus loves about his church. He commends them for being principled, discerning, and discriminating. Now, some of the evil people that evidently came to Ephesus were people who wanted to assume high authority. And the church had to uphold the qualifications of apostleship. Jesus says, okay. You don't endure evil men, and some of these evil men were calling themselves apostles. They wanted high authority. They wanted high influence. And Jesus said, you knew what was involved in being an apostle. Not everyone who calls himself an apostle is an apostle. Not in any sense of the word. And the church looked at what had been said about apostles. And you can see, I'm not going to turn there for time's sake. Acts 1, 22 and 23. I'm sorry, Acts 1, uh, 21 and 22, where they needed to choose an apostle. They did it with prayer. They thought about, okay, what are the qualifications for being an apostle? And that's the basis on which they selected an apostle. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Acts 9, 1. In Acts, and I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. 
These are passages which bear directly upon the question, who is an apostle? How do you figure out who an apostle is? Well, the, the church in Ephesus did it, and they did it so well that Jesus said, this is one of your strengths. You are discriminating, you are discerning, and you are not tolerating false apostles. The church did not allow and ambitious phonies, and they are commended by Jesus. Third wonderful feature of the church at Ephesus is that they were steadfast in the face of persecution. Steadfast in the face of persecution. Ephesus was a very affluent place, a very worldly place, where paganism and emperor worship was prominent. They had the... Uh, the Temple of Diana, Artemis. It was a wicked, worldly place where all kinds of sin was indulged. And the name of worship. So if you say to yourself, well, some of the churches that we have around, some of the churches, some of the other churches, things go on there. You wouldn't believe how that could happen in the name of worship. Well, that's what was happening in Ephesus. There was paganism of the rawest kind in Ephesus, and emperor worship was prominent. The world was aggressive in opposition because the believers did not give in. And now I want you to see the remarkable motivation of these Christians that Christ commends. Notice how it's put in our text. He says in verse 3, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. Mark it down. Why were these people refusing to go to paganism? Why were they refusing to offer incense to the emperor as a god? For my name's sake. Furthermore, just like their work ethic, they get the job done, they work till it's done, Jesus says, and you have not grown weary. Remarkable. Wave after wave of persecution, pressure upon pressure from friends and family and co-workers and government. And they weren't tired of saying no. That, that's what Jesus commends about the church in Ephesus, the remarkable motivation you have endured for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. Remarkable. Well, all of this is important. All these things that Jesus says to the church, commending them for these characteristics is important. But let me say that the most important thing comes next. The most important thing is number four, Christ reproves his church for offensive coldness. He reproves his church for offensive coldness in verse four. But, I have somewhat, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You would have thought that what Jesus says to them just before you have endured for my name's sake would mean that their love for the Lord Jesus Christ was vigorous and strong. I would have thought that. But I would have been wrong because Jesus says to the people who have endured for my name's sake, they had a temptation come their way. And they said, but I am a Christian. Jesus, I bear Jesus' name. I can't do that. You'd think, well, there's love. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. You may know that something's wrong and you must not do it. But that doesn't mean that you love the Lord. Sorry, that's, that's just what the text is telling us. You have endured for my name's sake, but you have left your first love. Your first love. And that's the significant part, right? Your first love. The church at Ephesus had one, many wonderful features. They were doing many things they were supposed to do. And yet Jesus reveals that they may do many of the right things without doing the most important thing that they were supposed to do. You think probably the, the one person, if you, if you wanted to take an example, an illustration of that, would be Martha. 
Martha, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus loved. Jesus loved them. And to some extent, they love them. But you remember what Jesus says about Martha. When Martha complains that her sister is just sitting around listening to the teaching of Jesus, he says, Martha, Martha, you are concerned about so many things. But really, one thing, one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. See, Martha was consumed about much serving. And you say, well, much serving means much love. Evidently, not always. Many times it does, but not always. They were supposed to love the Lord above every other person or activity. Christians, including in the church in Ephesus, had various exhortations. For example, they were told to love one another that was an important duty. And Christians, Christians were exhorted in, for example, in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, to walk in love toward one another in particular. But they were not warned with the same sharpness that they are here, because this is the most important element of love to be exercised by a Christian. And this is why the Lord Jesus can say to them, this is so damaging to you and to my glory that you need to do something about it. I'm going to remove your candlestick. Close the doors. As they used to say when I was younger, write Ichabod over the church. No glory. This is why I believe this is the peculiar love of Christ he is exhorting them about. The word, the word love doesn't have any qualifications. He doesn't say, You're, you've left your first love of me. But that's what it is. It's not the love of the brethren. As important as that is, I don't want to minimize it. But it's the love of Christ in particular. Notice that the Lord is exhorting them about the love they had early on in their relationship to him. The church has existed for more than 40 years. They're guys who write commentaries and they do the numbers when Paul went to Ephesus and now how long it was since John was on Patmos and they, they uh, assert, and I think it's correct, that the church had existed for more than 40 years. Many believers had probably been added over time. Some may have moved to other places. But the core at Ephesus was substantially the same as it was when the gospel first came. The same people who had come to Christ in previous times were there. But as a whole, they did not have the same warm love for the Lord they once had. One other thing I want to say about this important, important reproof of the Lord is that it was not about a slow cooling. You might say, well, it's easy to understand, isn't it? You get busy in your work, you have tasks to do, and little by little you grow distant, and, and, you, and it's almost accidental, right? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says there hasn't been an accidental natural cooling of your love to me. He says, uh, this is what people sometimes say, I've heard it myself. I lost my first love. You don't lose your first love, my friends. You do not. Jesus doesn't say you lost your first love. He says you left your first love. And that is a conscious act. That's a deliberate act. That's the way the word is used. Uh, this, this word for, for leave is used of deliberate leaving. For example, in the Lord's Prayer, you pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Is that is that something that accidentally and slowly happens over time? You kind of forget that the person sinned against you, and so you've kind of forgotten about it? No. It's something you do consciously, deliberately at a point in time. Your brother or sister has offended you, and you forgive them. It's an act of time, a moment of time, where you actually write off the debt. 
That word is used in the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go search for the one who is lost. He leaves the 99 in the open field. He leaves it. It's not something that happens gradually as though he makes a distance. He gets a couple of feet away and then more feet away. And finally, he's far away looking for the other one. It's something that happens deliberately in a moment of time. He leaves the 99. He goes and searches for the one. That's the word that is that is used. It's a deliberate leaving. And when we think about love, one, le one leaves one love for another love. There is something else that captures the attention. You take a guy who's dating a girl, a girl who's dating a guy, a husband who is loving his wife, a wife who's loving her husband, and suddenly she realizes she has left that love because there is the intrusion of another love. So that the heart of the believer that Jesus is referring to is one that has turned away from loving Christ for loving someone or something else. This is what our Lord is reproving his church for. At some point, the love of Christ was displaced by another love. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't say what that other love is, and it really doesn't matter. It's a grave defect that spells the demise of the church unless it's corrected. And that's the fifth thing that Christ does in this letter. He corrects his church in verse 5. He says, therefore, since you have left your first love and since this is so offensive to me, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So the Lord Jesus corrects his church very graciously. He doesn't wait for them to say, Lord, how do we correct this? He goes right after them and he tells them how it's corrected. The Lord gives concrete directions. And it's very gracious that the Lord Jesus Christ is so specific so that we don't have any trouble. If we find in our hearts, we say, my love for the Lord Jesus Christ is not the first love, the warm, aggressive love for my Savior. Jesus gives very good direction to us. He says, first of all, remember. Remember. And you might almost turn this to application. It is application Jesus is applying now. And he's telling his church, you've left your first love. What do you do? First of all, remember. Think back to the former days when love was so fervent. It's very handy to think of the husband and wife relationship, the, the girl-guy relationship in this way. Does a woman not remember how she first felt and acted when she fell in love with the man who became her husband? She remembers. She goes back. He would call on the phone and she was, I think that's him. He said he would call this evening and she runs to the phone and she picks up the receiver and she gladly listens for his voice. Now he's upstairs in the bedroom and he's calling her and she said, he can wait. It's not the same warm devotion that it once was. And it can happen on either side of the relationship, of course, but with Christ, it can't happen on both sides. It can't happen on his side. It can only happen on our side. But this is what Jesus says. Can you think back to your first love of the Savior? Think about it. See how your love has cooled. See what has changed. You've changed and you're thinking about Christ. And now you need to restore your faith of him. So this is Jesus' first direction for curing a rejected and abandoned love for Christ. He says, remember, number one. Number two, regard this as a great sin, Jesus says. Regard this as a great sin. 
The abandoned love of Christ is a great sin. It's not a minor fault. It's not, not a little mistake. What does Jesus say? Repent! Not to love Christ is a supremely great sin. And the Christian, when he realizes it, or she realizes it, must think of it this way. Go to God in prayer. Confess it. Tell the Lord. Lord Jesus, it's a great sin. I have no answer for it. It's like someone who has been caught guilty with uh, of, of uh, capital murder with a bloody knife still in the hand. Go to him. Tell him in prayer. Confess it and plead for that wonderful forgiving grace which we heard about this morning in Psalm 85. So this is the direction, remember, Regard it as a great sin and repent. And thirdly, do your first works. Do your first, first works. Go back to the kind of Christian that you were when you first discovered the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stir up your affection by remembering everything he did for you. And that's what captured your heart. The gospel captured your heart when you first heard of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you thought about the amazing truth that Jesus Christ, that God in Christ would love you. <coughs> That's what created that fervent love in the first place, isn't it? We love because he first loved us. Remember what he did for you and continues to do for you. Be sure you worship, that when you worship, you stir up yourself to affection for him. Be devoted to all the means of grace. You know, one of the things that marks young Christians is they can't wait to get to church. Now, here I am speaking to the people who are at the evening worship service. <laughs> there are probably some people who are not at the evening worship service who want to hear it. However, here we are, and it's for us. Be devoted to all the means of grace. Don't allow yourself to make cheap excuses for making any worship Empty of your person and your activity because love grows by investments. You give yourself to the one whom you love. Be obedient to him even when it's difficult because love obeys. See the commandments of God in Jesus' words, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love obeys. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Look about your life, look at your life, look at the demands of God that rest upon you and say, okay, Lord, here is, here is my duty. It's difficult, but you know what? I'm supposed to love you with all your, my heart, my soul, and strength, so I'm going to obey you, Lord. Be obedient to him. Pray for and strive to love in a manner worthy of God. You know, love is a customized thing. There was a girl who signed my yearbook. I think it was my junior high yearbook. She put a poem in there. The first part of the poem was really nice. It said, I love you, I love you, I love you, it's true. Then the second part, don't get excited, I love monkeys too. <laughs> but you see, I don't want to be loved like a monkey. I don't want to be admired across a cage and observed, and neither does God. God wants to be loved as God, you see. It's customized, it's a customized thing. And so you love God with a love worthy of Him. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ continues to stir them up and to press them by telling them how very offensive abandoned love is and it's very gracious you know I knew a lady who loved a man I know them very well and the man supposedly loved the woman they supposedly loved one another but then the woman said to her husband one day I no longer I no longer love you I don't I don't want to be your wife you 
you know, the temptation of a shunned love is to say, okay, you don't want it? You don't get it. Go ahead, go away. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He tells you how offensive it is. He says, repent or I will remove your lampstand out of its place. It's very serious. And it's gracious in the Lord to tell them that. But let's move on. We're almost done. We have a couple more elements in the letter here. Here is uh, here's the, 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 the rest of the letter is filled with encouraging grace from Jesus Christ. Although he has been shunned and rejected and the believers were not loving him anymore as they should, notice what Jesus does with them now. He's already told them what they've done wrong, how serious it is, but now there is an additional commendation. If you're in the outs with your friend, you have an argument with your friend, generally speaking, it's not human nature to try building bridges and repair. Okay, you've insulted me. You've insulted me on the highest level now. You know what? I'm done with you. It's not quite that. That's the significance of the additional commendation in verse 6. Yet this you do have. I know you don't love me the way you ought to, but this you do have. What do you have? You don't have love, but you have hate. You have the right kind of hate. Very striking in the modern ear, is it not? This I, you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It, uh, Nicolaitans are going to come up in another letter or two. They were de evidently very immoral and very heretical. And Jesus says, you know what I like? I like that you hate the Nicolaitans because I hate them too. Why does the Lord add this? They might be tempted. They might be tempted and want to stir up their love to ignore the commitment they had made against this kind of heresy. They might, they might come away saying, well, you know what? The Lord Jesus says we don't love him. Maybe we don't love enough. Maybe we need to love more people. Be more loving. Love the Nicolaitan. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. You need to not let go of your ethical principles. The Lord prevents them from going soft on doctrine or sin. He says you need to love me, love the Lord, and hate evil. All hatred is not bad. That's, that's heresy today in politically correct speech, right? Or some, some hatred is absolutely necessary. And this is what Jesus says. It's commendable. I like it. It's God-like. It's me. It's like me, the Lord Jesus. Well, we have just two more things. I'll try to be very brief with them. There is a call to universal attention in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All the churches should pay attention to this. All, even those who are not guilty of this deficiency, should guard against it. So let's, let's say at City View Baptist Church, the love of Christ is warm in most, if not all, of her members. Still, you need to pay attention because the one thing you don't want is to go away saying, oh, we're pretty good. We haven't lost our first love. Wonderful. Make sure it doesn't happen to you. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the call to universal attention. And then finally, the great promise, a great promise. Jesus ends with a great promise. So think about this for a moment. He, he goes from telling them how to correct their great fault. He goes on to tell them um, that they need to hear. They how to correct it. Hear what God is saying through his spirit. And you have a promise. Why promise someone 
who doesn't love you. I mean, think about it. Think about think about the the husband who has uh, pushed his wife aside. She going to make him some promises? Uh uh. There's a proverb: Hell has no fury like a woman scorned. But what Jesus does is he makes a great promise. The promise of the privileges which all the faithful will enjoy. Jesus says to him who overcomes. So in the church at Ephesus, maybe some other people won't respond. Maybe they won't repent. Maybe they won't stir up their love to Christ. But you will. I will. And Jesus says, whatever happens to the rest of the people, you make sure that you restore your love because there is a great promise. He, uh, he says, he who overcomes, he who restores his first love, he who corrects his way, he will be given a blessing. I will grant him to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, the candlestick may be removed, but the individual believer who restores his love to God and sees that he repents and changes and comes back in full love to Christ, he's going to enjoy eternal life. That's what this with promises. Uh, Revelation 22, 2, Revelation 22, 12 and 13. They eat of the, of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That means eternal life. And so this is a great promise to bring us back by grace. So, dear brethren, this is a letter to the church at Ephesus. We may not be personally reproved by it, or we may, but it's a gracious letter of the Lord Jesus Christ, for which we are to worship and thank Him. Let's pray. Amen. Our Lord Jesus. Your word is very faithful. And you have given it to us because of your enduring love for your church and your people. And we do ask that you would search us. We have sometimes sung, search me, O God, and know my thoughts, I pray. Try me, my Savior. See if there be some wicked way in me. Lead me. Forgive my sins. Lead me in the way of everlasting life. Thank you for what you have said in your word this day. Thank you for the wonderful, kind providences, uh, promises and offers you have made. And grant that all of your people here at City View Baptist Church, preacher included, may love you supremely. Forgive our sins, cleanse our souls, help us to stir ourselves up to love you fervently. We ask through your own blessed and holy name. Amen.